As a parent of young kids, I've spent quite a lot of time at the playground. We have some great playgrounds in this neighborhood. And one thing I've realized is that the playground is an excellent place to learn about conflict resolution. Because kids are always fighting. And parents are always kind of hovering around listening, ready to step in to help the kids resolve whatever that conflict is. Now here's how this usually happens. One kid will say something mean to another kid. Immediately the parents will get involved. The first thing that they'll do is they'll ask the perpetrator to apologize. Say you're sorry for what you did. And then the other parents will tell their child to accept the apology and to forgive. I want you to notice the sequence of events. An injury happens, an apology comes first, and then comes forgiveness. I know this seems basic, but please stay with me. This is what justice intuitively looks like. Someone takes responsibility for their actions, and then the other person forgives them. That makes sense, right? But that is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is so unusual. Because the gospel says that God doesn't work this way. It says that with God, the forgiveness comes before the apology. That Jesus forgives not only before people apologize, but even before they realize they need to apologize. That is what we're going to talk about today. I think there's no better example of this than the story of Zacchaeus. We are in a sermon series entitled Into the Mess. We're looking at the lives of, uh, of people in the New Testament who had messy lives and how Jesus entered into that mess to give people hope and a new sense of direction. Zacchaeus' story comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts on this your holy word be acceptable in your sight and life-giving to us and through us as your people. Amen. <clears throat> Zacchaeus was a tax collector. If you have read the New Testament at all, then you probably know that tax collectors were despised by basically everybody. Now, to some extent, I think this is just the nature of taxes. This is captured pretty well in a Beatles song called Tax Man. George Harrison wrote this song in 
1966, and there's an interesting historical sort of scene that preceded this song. The Labor Party had just imposed a new progressive tax in Britain. The Beatles were in the top, top tax bracket, and that meant that they had to literally pay 95% of their earnings to the government. And that explains why in the song, John Lennon sings, that's one for you, 19 for me. Do you know that? Because they literally paid 95% tax on their earnings. And so despite the fact that they were making loads of money, they were literally on the brink of bankruptcy. But it wasn't only the amount of the taxes that bothered George Harrison, it was where the money was going. This vast amount of money that the Beatles was paying the government of Britain was being used to make weapons for the Vietnam War, which Harrison found deeply offensive. Now these are the same kinds of problems that Jews in Palestine faced in the first century, but it was actually much worse for them. Because what Rome did was truly cynical. Rome took people's land and then charged them for the privilege of letting them live there. So you had people who had been farming land for generations and suddenly they were slaves working on land that used to be theirs. Imagine how that made people feel. The people who imposed taxes on these people were tax collectors. And Jews hated them more than anyone else. First of all, because they were collaborators. They were fellow Jews who were working on behalf of the enemy. That was bad enough. But tax collectors didn't only charge what Rome wanted. The way they made their money was by charging more than what Rome required and keeping all of the excess for themselves. And that meant that there was a direct connection between the cruelty of a tax collector and his wealth. The wealthier he was, the crueler he was. Now in this passage, we are told that Zacchaeus was not just a tax collector, he was the chief tax collector, and Luke makes it a point to say how rich he was. And what that means is that Zacchaeus was the cruelest of the cruel. He made money by squeezing poor families for their last pennies. It just doesn't get much worse than this. Now, one thing that I always stress to people who are new to Christianity is that we believe that morality is objective. There really is such a thing as right and wrong. It is objectively evil to steal money from poor families to enrich yourself. Now, sometimes this idea of an objective morality scares people because they start to think about their own lives and they say, well, what if I've done things like this? What if I've participated in evil? If you've had worries like that, then this story is good news for you. Because what this story shows is that no matter what a person has done, redemption is possible, but that redemption does not work in the way that you think it will. Let's look at Zacchaeus' story. As our reading begins, Jesus is traveling through Jericho. This man, Zacchaeus, wants to see him, but he's too short. He literally, physically can't see over the crowd. And so he scampers up a sycamore tree so that he has a clear line of sight at Jesus. Now, there are a, a variety of reasons why I think Zacchaeus climbed that tree. First of all, he climbed it so he could get a good look at Jesus. But second, I think it's pretty safe to imagine that he didn't feel welcome in this crowd because people hated Zacchaeus. And so he probably climbed that tree in some 
respects just to be safe, to be isolated from these people that hated him. But there are other reasons, because you see, as much as he wanted to see Jesus, he probably didn't want Jesus to see him. After all, what would a holy man of God want with a sinner like Zacchaeus? He knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly how he's made his wealth. He's made a Faustian bargain. He's decided that he'd rather be rich than be good. And so he naturally presumes that a moral teacher like Jesus would want nothing to do with him. But I suspect there's even another reason that he climbs this tree. When you think about it, Zacchaeus was probably alone a lot. He was not a popular person. I imagine that money was probably the only comfort he had. And this is the way it often is with people's idols, whatever they are, drugs or money or food or work or achievements or people's approval of us. These things can bring temporary comfort to our egos, but they always isolate us. And so I want you to imagine Zacchaeus sitting in this tree alone, separated from the crowd, separated from God. He has every reason to assume that Jesus will ignore him. And in fact, if Jesus did see him, the only thing he would, would expect Jesus to do is to make an example out of him. Don't be like this guy. In fact, there's another scene in the Gospels in which there's this Pharisee who's praying out loud, and this is literally what he prays. God, I thank you that I'm not like tax collectors. But what Zacchaeus doesn't know is that Jesus is different. The gospel is different. The gospel says that it's not how good you are that matters. We all fall short. Nobody can ever do enough. And so what the gospel says is that our confidence doesn't rest on what we do. It rests on what God does. So let's see what happens. Jesus actually does see Zacchaeus. And he calls him by name even though they've never met. Zacchaeus, he says, come down that tree. Today I'm coming over to your house. He has invited himself to have dinner at the home of a cruel man, a man who has become wealthy by exploiting poor people. It's hard to overstate how crazy this must have seemed to people who were watching this. I mean, it just goes against every assumption that people had. Zacchaeus, he didn't even want salvation. He wasn't even asking for it. He was visibly living in sin. And yet Jesus, of all the people that he could have called out, he invites himself into this man's life, which suggests that he accepts this sinner, that he values this sinner, that he doesn't hold Zacchaeus' sin against him. It's not that Jesus doesn't know who Zacchaeus is. Jesus knows the crying mothers handing over their last pennies to this immoral man, he knows the traumatized children seeing their fathers forced into slavery because they can't pay their debts to the empire. He is all too familiar with the pain and suffering caused by people like Zacchaeus. And so he had every right to tell Zacchaeus, you're an evil man, and before I even talk to you, I want you to repent. But instead, he says, I'm coming to eat in your home with no conditions. 
I want to take you back to the beginning of this sermon, back, back to the playground. You remember how we started? Two kids, one kid hurts the other. First comes the apology. Then, and only then, comes forgiveness, right? The apology has to come first, doesn't it? But there's no apology from Zacchaeus. Jesus does something here that is unbelievably unexpected. He forgives Zacchaeus before he apologizes. It's pretty interesting. And then even more unexpectedly, Zacchaeus repents. He stands there and he says to Jesus, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Forgiveness came first. And then came the apology. Now, if we are to understand the gospel, we have to get our minds around a pretty unsettling idea. Jesus' forgiveness is unconditional, meaning it comes before we apologize. And yet that's precisely why it works. Let's think about this. If Jesus had said, Zacchaeus, if you change, I will love you. It never would have worked. Zacchaeus already knows that he's a sinner. And if Jesus had said, I will only love you if you change, it would mean that salvation is conditional. It would mean that it was up to Zacchaeus. Maybe if he repents well enough, he's okay. But there's no guarantee. There's a good chance that he will never have God's love. And so if I were Zacchaeus, I'd probably never even try. And so the only way for Zacchaeus to actually change is if he could believe something radical, that before he changes, he's already loved. That he's forgiven before he apologizes, because that would be love without conditions. That would be love for who he is on the very bottom of being itself, below his choices, below his actions, below his thoughts, if he could believe that deep down in his very being he is already accepted, then ironically, he might actually change. In his letter to the Romans, Paul spoke about this paradox. He said, this is how God demonstrates his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinning, before we changed, before we apologized, before we even knew that we needed to change, Christ went to the cross. This is such a radical idea that most Christians, even committed Christians, we still get it wrong. We think that God is waiting for us to change before he will bless us. And you can see evidence of this even in the way that most Christians pray. Let's look at the prayer of confession. Every, at the beginning of every worship service, uh, we have a prayer of confession. And so many people, I've read so many of these kinds of prayers in my life, so many of the prayers go this way. People say, God, please forgive me for what I've done. Now, you see, when you ask God to forgive you, what you're saying is that he might not. And that means that you don't understand the gospel. That God has already forgiven you. Not for anything that you've done, but because it's a gift. Here's what we should say in our prayer of confession. God, thank you for already forgiving me. Thank you for what Christ already did to rescue me 
from myself. And then we should pray, God, because of that forgiveness, I want to change. I want to love more. I want to share what you've given me with other people. And you see, that's why the gospel of different, is different, and that's why it works, because only unconditional love really changes people. I want to tell you a story that I think illustrates this. I recently heard a TED Talk from a man named Shaka Singor. Singor was a drug dealer from Detroit. When he was 19 years old, he shot and killed a man. He was arrested and he went to jail. And he says in his talk that for many years in jail, he really had not changed. He was very angry, he was unrepentant, and in prison he continued to break all the rules He sold drugs, he ran black market stores, he loan sharked. He had basically made a Faustian bargain. Life is unfair, so I'm just going to look out for myself. Six years into his sentence, he got a letter that changed his life. The letter was from the godmother of the man he killed, and I want to share this letter with you. She wrote, Dear James, which was his birth name, A few days ago, it was the sixth anniversary of my son's death. I call Chris my son because he lived with me much of his life. I'm sure you remember him because you are the man who murdered him. July 28, 1991 was a very difficult day for me and my family. I had spent three years being a caregiver for Chris's mother. And she had just died of cancer in December, and then six months later, I received the phone call that our son, Chris, was dead. Chris had a new baby son, only 10 months old. He also had two daughters. One is now in college, and although she is a very bright girl, she's having terrible bouts of depression because her dad is gone. The rest of our family tries to help her, but there is an emptiness in her life that no one else can fill. What I want you to know other than these painful things that you have brought upon my family, is that I love you and I forgive you. How can I do less? God loves you and I am a Christian, and so I humbly follow his guidance. His word tells me that he loves us all, no matter what we have done or how bad we think we are, and we are to love one another no matter the circumstances. You may think that your life is a mess, but you are special. And God is able to pick you up and help you to go on. He can clean up your messes no matter what they are. God can be your best friend. Just approach him as a little child. Crawl up in his lap and let him love you. He can fill that empty hole down deep inside. Sincerely, Nancy. This letter was the beginning of Shaka's road to recovery. Now, I want you to notice what Nancy didn't say in her letter. She didn't demand an apology. She didn't say, you owe me an apology, and I will not forgive you until you repent. She said, I forgive you now. I love you now. I see promise in you now. Just like Jesus said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today, whether you repent or not. And then guess what happened? He repented. On one level, this might not seem fair. I mean, fairness, after all, is an eye for an eye. 
Well, let me just tell you this. The gospel's not fair. It was never meant to be. And yet the supreme paradox is that the gospel alone is what allows us to change. And therefore, it's not actually letting us off the hook. It's the only thing that enables us to repent and have new life. Of course, Shaka Singor didn't have to take in this woman's love, but he did. In the years after getting that letter, he has dedicated his life to helping others through prison reform. He's written a best-selling book. He's been interviewed on television programs. He's committed to spending the rest of his life helping the kinds of people he once hurt. And he was a drug dealer and a murderer. Look at what God's unconditional love can do. Think about the ways this might apply to your life. Are you waiting to improve improve yourself before you give your life to God? Do you think that he doesn't love you the way you are? You have no idea of how powerful the gospel really is. C.S. Lewis once said that the reason he knew Christianity must be true is that when he actually started to look at it, he realized that nobody could have ever thought this up. Because it just doesn't seem fair to start with forgiveness. It goes against our sense of justice, but this is the way of God. And thank goodness it is. Thank goodness it's not up to us. Because this is our light in the darkness. This is our rescue in the midst of danger. So one closing thought. No matter where you are, Jesus is asking you if he can come to your house for dinner. You can worry about repentance afterwards. Right now, he simply wants to come into your life. Will you welcome him? Let's pray. Holy God, your mercy is what gives us life. Help us to drop our defenses and to understand that your love is unconditional. As a community, we pray that you would make us a place where we can practice forgiveness in your name. In Christ, we pray. Amen.